Today's scripture reading is Jeremiah 3.14 through 4.4, which is written in the bulletin starting on page 8. First, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your word, for speaking through your people in all ages, and that it's been passed down to us today. Pray that you would send your spirit upon Pastor Jim, that he would speak your truth, and you would illumine each of our hearts, that we could hear it clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I give your ancestors as an inheritance. I myself said, How gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire. Because of the evil you have done, burn with no one to quench it. The word of the Lord. Well, we're 12 days into the new year, and I wonder how your New Year's resolutions are going. My experience is that this is uh, about the time of the year, about two weeks in, when the resolution that seemed like a really good idea uh, begins to seem like something that could maybe wait until next year. There's a a Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic strip that was once published on New Year's Day where Calvin and Hobbes are uh, walking outside in the snow. And Calvin says, 
I asked Dad if he wanted to see some New Year's resolutions I wrote. He said he'd be glad to, and he was pleased to see I was taking an interest in self-improvement. I told him the resolutions weren't for me. They were for him. That's why we're outside now. And, and Hobbes replies, I wondered what the rush was. In the same strip, Calvin goes on to talk about how he gets disillusioned uh, with New Year's. He says, they don't seem very new at all. Each new year is just like the old year. Here another year has gone by and everything's still the same. There's still pollution and, and war and stupidity and greed. Things haven't changed. I say, what kind of a future is this? I thought things were supposed to improve. I thought the future was supposed to be better. And then Hobbes replies, the problem with the future is that it keeps turning into the present. This is a perspective that I think the prophet Jeremiah would have appreciated. Jeremiah was a prophet that we're studying in this series who lived through a time of enormous conflict and disaster in ancient Israel. There were multiple wars. The empire Babylon came in and occupied the land of Israel, and eventually this led to the exile of the people from their land. And Jeremiah was tasked with telling them that though there was all these things going on, that their problems weren't just on the outside, they were also on the inside because the people had chosen uh, over generations to turn away from the Lord their God and to worship idols. Uh, They hadn't obeyed him, they hadn't trusted him, and so like the other prophets of the Bible, Jeremiah calls them back. He says, return. He, he invites them to, to return, to change their ways, to, to enter into a new future, a new kind of future where things could be different. And what we want to look at today in uh, these chapters is, how does this happen? Really what we're asking is, how do people change? Another way to translate this word return, the Hebrew word shuv, is uh, with the word Repent. Uh, repentance sounds like a bad thing in our culture, but if we pay careful attention to what the Bible teaches here uh, today, I think we'll discover that there's actually a lot of good news uh, in this word, repent, repentance, change, return. We're going to consider three things. The motivation for repentance, the character of repentance, and third, the essence of repentance. First, what is, the, what is the motivation for repentance? Is it, is it positive or, or negative? You know, I th- we're very familiar with negative motivations for change. If you've ever been a parent or a child, you know what I'm talking about. I call this the you better do blank or else motivation. You fill in the gaps. You better clean your room or else. You better do the dishes or else. You better take responsibility or else my wrath will flare up and burn like fire. That's, that's the words we heard from Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4 today. And, and that's just what you might expect to hear in the Bible, especially in, in the Old Testament. We're used to, to a kind of religion that tells us we have to change, or else. You better repent, and if you come crawling back to God with enough remorse then he might just forgive you and, and take you back. Now, we need to see 
that, that God's anger is, is expressed here. I mean, that's pretty clear in, in chapter 4, verse 4. The God of the Bible can't stand injustice or abuse or oppression of, of any kind. Those things do make him angry. Now, this is actually good news because what kind of God would he be if he just overlooked evil? That wouldn't be a very good God. So a, a God who, who becomes angry when he sees sin and evil is, is actually a good thing because it gives us hope for this, this broken world uh, that the creator will uh, somehow bring it to account. But what I want you to see is that this is, this is not how God motivates his people to change or to repent. He motivates by grace. Let me show you what I mean as we, as we look at the rest of this passage. The three things. First, look at verses 14 to 18. This is an amazing passage because it looks far beyond Jeremiah's current situation in the 6th century BC, and God reveals his ultimate commitment to his people. He offers a vision of restoration that goes beyond anything that the people could imagine. He will return them to their land. He will give them new leaders with deep wisdom. And most of all, he promises that his presence will be with them. No longer just through the symbol of the the Ark of the Covenant received at Mount Sinai, but now Jerusalem is the throne of the Lord. He he dwells with his people as as he did in the Garden of Eden. This is the first point. God gives them this vision for the future here at the very beginning as he calls them to return. Second, in verse 19, The Lord declares his love for his people. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. Notice, we don't have to wait until the New Testament to hear God called father. He always invited his people to know him as a faithful father. He makes that clear here also at the beginning. Finally, he promises healing power in verse 22. Return, faithless people, not so I can beat you up, push your face in the, in the dirt, remind you of all the wrong things you have done, but because I will cure you of backsliding. He doesn't offer just a temporary fix, but will bring permanent healing and wholeness. This is the message that the Lord puts in front of the people as he calls them to return. At the beginning, before they respond. He has a vision for the future and he is committed to it. He wants to be with his people. He loves them and he promises healing for them. Do you see what this means? Repentance is not a way to make God love you. Instead, it's a response to the love and the grace that God has already declared because it is who he is. 
There's something in us that resists an invitation like this. Uh, The 17th century poet and priest George Herbert uh, captured the the dynamic well in a poem. Uh, It's entitled, Love Bade Me Welcome. Now let me read it to you. You ready? We're going to read a poem now. Got to change the way you're listening, maybe. Love bade me welcome. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack, from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it does deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. I love this poem uh, because love convinces the author to enter in despite his dust and sin. The most striking part of the poem is after he says, let my shame go where it does deserve. In other ways, just let me go away from you. And the response of love is neither, okay, go away or, or don't worry about it. You know, just, you know, everything's okay. Instead, love replies, don't you know who bore the blame? In other words, yes, you are guilty, but, but love bore the blame for you. And then, and then he says, okay, well, if that's the case, but then I'll, I'll stay, but as a servant. And love says, no, no, you must sit down and eat at my table. We all experience something similar to this as, as we enter into the process of change uh, in the Christian faith. Christians believe that, that Jesus is the revelation of God's love, that he bore our blame on the cross, and that he invites us to sit and to eat at his table of grace. He doesn't want us just as servants, but as sons and, and daughters. And it's only when we have confidence that we have this kind of welcome to his table, this kind of love, that we can make an honest confession of our brokenness and sin. This brings us to our second point, the, the character of repentance. Beginning in verse 21, repentance is illustrated in this back-and-forth litany uh, between uh, the people of Israel and God. Now, the people respond to, to God's gracious invitation to return, and as they respond, they reveal to us four characteristics of, of biblical repentance. Let's look at each one of these uh, quickly. First, as the people come, they, they come with a new view of God. They say, yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. If you believe in a God of love, in, in a generic kind of sense, that, that he never judges Uh, He never holds wrongdoers to account. He never fights for the weak. Then 
you won't really believe that you ever need to be forgiven by him either. And so you won't go to him with the kind of boldness that we see the people doing here. On the other hand, if you believe that what you've done is, is too terrible for God to forgive, that he wouldn't ever accept someone like you, then you won't go to him either because you don't really believe that he's merciful. We really need both of these things together. When you see that God is both holy and gracious, then you can go to him with humility and boldness. You'll you'll be humble about yourself, but you'll also be bold in claiming his mercy and his love. And it's with this kind of sense that the people come to him as they cry out, yes, we will come to you for you are the Lord our God. They go to him because of who he is. Second, the people confess in verse 23 that they've put other things in place of the Lord their God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains, their ritual worship of of other gods, is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Now this verse shows why idol worship is critiqued by the prophets, not only because worshiping an idol was giving honor to another god than the Lord, but because the idols were substitute saviors for the people. We talked about this last week. To worship an idol means that you find your salvation in something else besides God, another savior thing, whether that's your reputation or your security or your success. Third, in verse 24, the people lament. They cry out to God. They grieve the consequences of their sin and the lost years uh, spent making sacrifices to other gods. Lament has its place. But as we're saying in this passage, repentance is more than regret. It's a commitment to change for the sake of a, a renewed fellowship with God and others not just to make ourselves feel better or, or to express our, our sorrow. Fourth, in verse 25, we see a deep confession of sin. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. They're clear and, and unambiguous ambiguous. They they have failed to obey God's voice. But notice that the sin that they confess is more than behavior. It's a a condition, a state of being. They they lie down in it. It has marked their whole lives. And notice that they confess not only their sin, but the sin of their ancestors. Their problem is not just an individual one. It's It's a generational one. What these four characteristics show us is that real change means a new view of God as both judge and savior, holy and merciful. It's it's not just saying sorry when you do something bad, but it's also more than changing behavior. It's, It's acknowledging and confessing our broken condition from which all our thoughts and and all our actions arise. Let me give you an illustration from uh, Prince Caspian in, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series. In uh, Prince Caspian, 
uh, several of the children who are the main characters have found themselves back in the world of Narnia. Lucy and Peter and Edmund and, and Susan. And they're lost, and they're trying to find their way to, the, to where the true king of Narnia is, Prince Caspian, in order to join his fight. And as they're hiking through a thick forest, the great lion Aslan, the, the, the Christ figure of Narnia, appears to Lucy to, to show her the right way to go. But only she can see him. Only Lucy can see him and not her siblings. And uh, she tells them that, that Aslan has appeared to her, that he's pointing them in the right direction, but they don't believe her. And they, they ridicule her and they refuse to follow. And then they go the wrong way. And they end up walking in circles because Lucy esteems more what her siblings think of her than, uh, than following what Aslan is directing. And the next, light, the next night, Aslan appears to Lucy again uh, while the others are sleeping. And, and here's what happens. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. Welcome, child, he said. For a time, she was so happy that she did not want to speak, but Aslan spoke. Lucy, he said, we must not lie here for long. Much time has been lost today. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right. They wouldn't believe me. They're all so... From somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. How could I? How could I have left? The others. I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone, could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone, I know, not if I was with you. But what, what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow? This little story brings us to our last point, the, the essence of repentance. Uh, because in this moment, Lucy realizes or, or, or recognizes something important. Her, her deepest problem was not just her disobedience to obey Aslan. It was her lack of faith and, and trust in him. That he really cared for her, that he would be with her no matter what, that he was leading her to a good place even when it was painful. The essence of repentance is a new heart that looks like this, that trusts the Father's love. Jeremiah says, break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. The image here is of hard ground that cannot be penetrated by the seeds. Only the thorn bush grows. And the unplowed ground must be broken up so a good harvest can be planted. 
the, the seeds of new life must be planted in broken soil. And this is an invitation, really, for us to welcome conviction when it comes and the confession that it requires. These may, in fact, be signs of God's fatherly love for us and his invitation to enter deeper into relationship with him. Now, verse 4 applies this to the heart, using the imagery of, of circumcision. The, the hardness of the heart must also be cut away to receive new life. The change we need most is on the inside. We need a new heart that loves and trusts the Father. Friends, the good news is that this is exactly what God offers us in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus shows us that God the Father wants nothing more than to have his children home. He's not an angry lawgiver who just wants his rules kept. Christians believe that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He shows us that at the heart of God is a suffering, self-sacrificial love. The invitation of the gospel is to trust in his love, more than your own efforts or even your repentance. He knows that our repentance will never be tearful enough. Our efforts to change will never be consistent enough. What satisfies God's judgment and establishes peace between us and him has to be his own grace. As Paul says in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the message uh, that you're invited to believe. Yes, Jesus had to die to deal with your sin. But he was willing to die because he loves you that much. When you believe this, you can have confidence that you are always welcome at God's table. He's always inviting you to return. Let me end today with a, a quote uh, from Henry Nowen. I think it expresses so well the heart of God towards us this morning. No matter uh, where we're coming from, in all our confusion and our, our mixed motivations and our failure, uh, he writes this. God does not require a pure heart before embracing us. Even if we return only because following our desires has failed to bring us happiness, God will take us back. Even if we return because being a Christian brings us more peace than being a pagan, God will receive us. Even if we return because our sins did not offer as much satisfaction as we had hoped, God will take us back. God's love does not require any explanations about why we are returning. God is glad to see us home and wants to give us all we desire just for being home. So why delay? God is standing there with open arms, waiting to embrace me. He won't ask any questions about my past. Just to bring me back is all he desires. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we uh, hear this invitation to come to you uh, just as we are,
Now, we confess that, that we hesitate. Now, we don't really believe that you accept and love us uh, in this way. We, we would rather earn our way and be servants. Help us to see you as you really are, a good father who's, who's made it possible for us to return to you in Christ. Break our hearts and remove our idols so that we might love you more deeply and so that we might love others as you have loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name and, and for his sake. Amen.